This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 12, and we're going to be in several different scriptures, but that will anchor us here at the very beginning, Matthew chapter 12, and uh, we'll be looking at uh, our reading from the New International Version. When you grow up in a Christian home and attend church on a regular basis, as I did and as many of you did, in fact, just curiosity, how many of you attended church as a child on a regular basis? Just, you know, a lot of us. But here's what happens. If we're not careful, we fall into the trap of loving our Christianity more than we love the people for whom Christianity was given. In other words, we'll love our doctrine. We will love our Bible. We'll love our standards. We'll love our traditions. We'll love worshiping Jesus. But we will not always love people. Now, we'll tolerate them. We'll put up with them. But our attitude sometimes is this. You know, this would be a great world if it weren't for people. How many of you have said that? Just be honest. I have as well. And and here's the result of doing that. We quit trying to influence people for Jesus Christ. Because they get on our nerves. They irritate us. We say, why waste my time on those people who are so annoying? Now, hold those thoughts for a few moments because this will come up again when we wrap up our lesson in an hour or two. And and seriously, this is one of those days where I wish I could do away with the clock. And, 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 you know, some of you, you've told me, forget the clock. Just go as long as you need to. Thank you. But others of you would probably be like one dear old sister that attended our the old church over on Ohio Street. And I'm told when 12 o'clock would roll around, if the preacher was still going, she would get up and walk down the center aisle, muttering out loud, talk, 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 talk. And this is true. Some of you remember that, don't you? That that you were over there. Yeah, I see the hands raised. Um, What she would do when she'd go out those doors and and they were kind of those spring-loaded doors, she would slam the door behind her. And go out into the parking lot, this is true, gospel truth, and start her car and rev up the engine. I don't know if she had loud pipes or not, but anyway. So knowing how interrelated this community is, probably some of you are related to her. And so I want to be, try to be, be somewhat sensitive to the clock today, just in, to try to keep some of you from stomping out muttering talk 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 and and i think I, I i've heard the story that she would even take her little transistor radio and listen to it you know put it up to her ear so she was uh quite quite the quite the the saint or i don't know what to call her but since it's been so long we probably need to reintroduce the series that we were in way back before christmas and It was a series entitled Rediscovering Jesus, and our goal for this series was, and it it still is, to try to come back to the heart of Jesus and have a fresh encounter with Him. 
And very early in his teaching, Jesus began to drop breadcrumbs. He began to drop hints that something new was coming. And, and, and he was about to fulfill and replace a lot of the religious structure that had been around for hundreds of years in what we call the Old Testament. Now, understand that the Jewish people did not call it the Old Testament. Christians started doing that about 100 years after that. But, but, but the Jewish people referred to their scripture as the law and the prophets. Well, well, when Jesus came, uh, he came to do something new. And he, and he said, I've not come to necessarily abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill it. I mean, to explain this in a better way, Jesus was basically saying this. If the Old Testament or if the law and the prophets were an assignment, Jesus would say, I'm here to finish it. Or if the law and the prophets were a, a math problem, Jesus would say, I'm here to solve it. If the law and the prophets were a puzzle, he would say, I'm here to complete it. With the coming of Jesus, the, the rules-based, the legalistic, the Old Testament religious structure was about to expire and experience a complete transformation. Let's go ahead and jump into our lesson. In our scripture today, Jesus is having a not-so-fun conversation with the religious leaders called Pharisees. Have you ever had a not-so-fun religious conversation? Man, I have. They're not pleasant. And here's what triggered this not-so-fun conversation, which incidentally has been repeated many, many times down through the years. Here it is, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, on Saturday... His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Look at the response of the religious leaders. Verse 2. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples were walking along just casually picking heads of grain, popping them into their mouth. And, and when the Pharisees saw them doing that, they blew a gasket because Clearly in their minds, this was against the law. And they said, Jesus, we got you. We caught you and your disciples doing a no-no. And we even got video footage of this. It'll be on social media in 60 seconds. And this will go viral. I actually added that part. Well, Jesus stops them and says, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and his, and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests and the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? In other words, don't your priests work on the Sabbath? You know, kind of like me when someone complains about having to work on Sunday, I, I say me too. But, but anyway, Jesus doesn't take too kindly to, to this nonsense. And, and, and so he kind of throws it right back at them. And it's almost like they begin having this spitting match. You know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and finally, Jesus gets fed up and says, look, look, look. You're so concerned about breaking the Sabbath. But you got this thing all backwards. He says, question, was the Sabbath made for man or man for the Sabbath. Uh, th this is a terrible illustration, but it was almost like asking the question, do couples have children just so there will be someone to play with the toys? 
I mean, that, that, that's kind of the way, way it was. And Jesus was trying to get across that God is not more concerned about the Sabbath than he is about people. God does not love his law more than he loves his people. But the Pharisees did. They loved the law and the prophets and didn't give a rip about people. Which unfortunately is what too many Christians do without realizing it. They fall in love with their rules. They fall in love with their doctrine. They fall in love with their traditions. And they begin to prioritize their standards, their traditions over people. And do you know what that's called? Legalism. Legalism. Remember this silly saying, and it's silly. But hopefully you can remember this. Legalism always prioritizes a view over a you. And many church people down through the years, they've prioritized a view over a you. They, they prioritize keeping rules and traditions over loving people, and such as maybe loving people that were divorced or gay or alcoholics. Or meth addicts. Or had skin that was of another color. Or they were of another socioeconomic class. Legalism always prioritizes a view over a you. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that God isn't firm on his law. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have some biblical standards. But it does mean, here's what it does mean. That we should never love doctrine and rules and traditions more than we love people. Because you know this, don't you? You know that Jesus did not give his life for doctrine, traditions, standards, rules. And again, they're important. Jesus gave his life for people. So this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and, and finally, Jesus lands a statement that will serve as the hinge point for where we're going today. Jesus says, look, you're so consumed with your Sabbath rules and the law and even the temple. But let me give you something that will really ruffle your feathers. It was like Jesus was saying, you got mad at us for picking a little bit of grain on the Sabbath. Get ready. This statement will send you into orbit. And here it is, Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Now, let me explain the implications of this statement, because in their minds, the temple was the greatest thing ever. I mean, it, it was sacred. It housed the Torah or, or the law of God. It was the epicenter of their worship. And in their minds, there was nothing greater than the temple. It was huge. It was big. And so to declare something or someone greater than the temple was borderline blasphemy. It was arrogance. It was ignorance. They were, they were so committed to the temple that if it were threatened in any way, most every Jew during that time period would gladly give their lives to defend the 32nd, uh, 37 acre area that made up the, the temple and the temple plaza area. Just a little bit of history, and I, I, I love certain types of history, especially when they relate to the Bible. But 
to, to illustrate their love and commitment to the temple, the, the love of the Jews, uh, seven years after Jesus said that one greater than the temple is here in the year 40, which w- would be about seven years again after Jesus died, the citizens of Jerusalem got wind of a plot. And, and this is very interesting. And here's what they discovered was that Emperor Caligula, uh, who was the Roman emperor from about 37 to 41, he loved to irritate the Jewish people. And so in a warped way, and this is really warped, but he decided to pick a fight with them. And he came up with a plan that he knew would drive them absolutely crazy. And the plan was to have a statue made of himself. And so he made arrangements for that to happen in the coastal town of Ptolemus. Let me just show you where that is so that you you can kind of understand. This is uh, obviously the country of Israel, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. And uh, Ptolemus would be kind of in the northern right there northwestern area and and so that's where uh he he, uh made arrangements for a statue of himself to be to be made well after his statue was completed he contacted petronius the governor of syria and he told him to go to ptolemus with with his soldiers and get this statue and take it to the city of jerusalem up to the temple and place it inside the temple walls well when petronius and, and listen to this arrived to get the statue the jews had gotten wind of this. And so when he got there, he was met by thousands and thousands of Jews that blocked his way. And I was actually reading about this in, in, in the works of uh, Josephus, who was a, a first century historian. And so let me just read a little bit uh, what, what he said here. Uh, but there came many tens of thousands of Jews to Petronius, to Ptolemus, to offer their petitions to him that he would not compel them to transgress and violate the law of their fathers. In other words, you know, we, we don't want this statue of, uh, 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 of Caligula, Caligula going up to the temple. And, and he said, if thou art entirely resolved to bring this statue and erect it, do thou first kill us and do what thou hast resolved on for while we are alive. We cannot permit, permit such things. So you've got tens of, uh, of thousands of Jews that, that are saying, you know, it ain't going to happen except over our dead bodies. Well, Petronius moved past the, the tens of thousands of, of Jews there, and, and he started making his way to Jerusalem, and, and he made it to Tiberias. So he started out here. Jerusalem is down here. So he made it over here to Tiberias, right at the edge of, of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he found an even larger crowd there. And once again, the the first century historian, Josephus, he said this, many tens of thousands of Jews met Petronius again when he was come to Tiberias. They made supplication to him that he would by no means reduce them to such distress, nor defile their city with the dedication of the statue. And and, uh, this is what the Jews said, according to Josephus, we will die before we see our laws transgressed. So they threw themselves down on their faces. And listen, they stretched out their throats. And they said they were ready to be slain. And this they did for 40 days. So they went on a hunger strike for 40 days. And in the meantime, uh, this is interesting, Kent, left off the tilling of their ground and that while the season of the year required them to sow it. So it was during planting season. And uh, thus they continued firm in their resolution and proposed to themselves to die willingly rather than to see the dedication of, of, of the statue. And, and so 40 day, uh, a, a hunger strike stretched out their throats 
endangered the economy because it was during planting season, but they didn't care. The temple was more important to them than having food on the table. Well, Petronius didn't know what to do. You know, here you've got uh, tens of thousands of Jews and, and he could have easily defeated them because they were unarmed. And, but he knew that this would end up being a slaughter. It would be genocide. So here's what he did. He wrote a letter to the emperor asking for advice, knowing that his failure to deliver the statue uh, to, to the temple would not only cost him his job, but it would probably cost him his life. And, and so what was super interesting, in a twist of providence or fate, while the letter was on its way to Rome... Some Roman senators conspired with the Roman Praetorian Guard and they assassinated Caligula and the crisis was averted. But this just shows how committed the Jewish people were to the temple. But here comes Jesus and and says, someone greater than the temple is here. And when he said that, you know, the the, the people's reaction was, no way. (laughs) You know, there could never be anything or anyone greater than the temple. Now, understand that this was the second, actually, probably in in a sense, the third temple, because the the first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed in 586 B.C. And just a little bit of history. And, 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 you know, at this time, people were expelled. The Babylonians carted off the the best and the brightest people. And, in fact, that's when they took the Fab Four. Remember? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Remember the fourth? Daniel. Daniel? Well, well, some years later, the the Persian emperor allowed the people to return to the city. It was Cyrus the Great said, you know, you can go back there and and I'll let you build the temple. I'll even help you. But it's got to be kind of an econo, scale-back temple. We don't want a a temple that's as grand and glorious as as the original one. And and, in the Bible, it's interesting. It says that there were some people there that knew the original temple. And and it says they wept because it was not nearly as grand and glorious as the the original temple uh, at that time. Well, several hundred years later, Herod then, 20 years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great went to the city of Jerusalem and began rebuilding the temple. And he said, I want to build it to its former glory. And and, and that temple that is now referred to as Herod's temple was extraordinary. It was magnificent. It was stunning. Uh, Here's a model of what the temple looked like in in those days. Um, I mean, it was just incredible. This was a whole temple plaza area right there. 37 acres. And uh, what, what was very in- interesting and an ancient wonder of the architectural world was that the entire temple was made of what is called Jerusalem cut stone. In fact, all of the buildings still today in, in Jerusalem had to be constructed out of this. You see it. It's all white stone. Uh, but some of these stones, they were 11 by 16 by 44 feet, and they weighed, listen, 500 tons. 500 tons. And, and, and this was an area where earthquakes were frequent, but, but Herod basically built an earthquake-proof temple for the Jews. And, and so when Jesus said one greater than the temple was coming, everybody thought, no way in the world. Well, one afternoon, Jesus and his disciples had been in the temple and, and they were leaving and they were probably going down the southern stairs that would take them down in the Kidron Valley. That was between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And 
And one of Jerusalem, uh, one of Jesus' disciples turned and looked back over his shoulder to the temple. And he said in, in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, as he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what, what magnificent buildings. As many times as they had seen the temple, they still couldn't get over the size and the magnificence and And I'm sure they were thinking, how in the world did they carve stones that large? And this is a question for Paul Miller and his crew. How in the world did they get those 500 ton stones up on top of the temple mount? And that's still a question of mine. But then what comes next? (laughs) Oh, I, I, I love my study time this week. It just really, God gave me some, he just helped me, helped his dull mind to learn a few things. But what comes next should make you sit up straight. Because what follows is epic. Jesus continues on and says in Mark chapter 13, verse 2, Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, notice the text says that the stones will be thrown down. And and the Greek word makes it clear that these stones wouldn't just fall down. It, It says they would be thrown down as into the Kidron Valley. And those listening probably just stared for a, a minute and then maybe chuckled and said, ah, Oh, Jesus, what's the punchline? This is a good joke. Ha, ha, ha. This is so funny. Because even though an earthquake might crack a few stones, it couldn't throw all of the stones of the temple down into the valley below. In their minds, there was really only one force in the world powerful enough to do that, and, and that would be the Roman army. And, but, but the Roman army was not about to destroy Herod's temple. Herod was a vassal king, hired king who worked for the Rome, and, and he was the one who had built the temple to keep peace with the Jews. And so in their minds, that wasn't a possibility. So Jesus and the disciples make their way down into the Kidron Valley and then begin to walk up the Mount of Olives. But the disciples, you know how it is sometimes somebody will say something, you can't get it out of your mind. It's just there. And, and the disciples couldn't get away from what Jesus had said. They, they kept thinking, surely not. Jesus, this magnificent temple, this huge temple, 500 ton stones, that's pretty much earthquake proof. That there's no way that this will be destroyed. Well, Peter, James, John, and Andrew couldn't stop thinking about it. And so in Mark chapter 13, verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? And look up here. I would love for you this afternoon or or tomorrow, this week, find a Bible. Your your version, electronic version, Bible or or dust off your grandma's Bible, whatever. But I would like for you to turn over and and write this down to Luke chapter 21, because Luke does an amazing job of answering their question. And, And I want you to read what Jesus says about the days when this would happen, which incidentally is also a scripture that leads us into the signs of the second coming. But that's another topic for another day. 
But anyway, Jesus says these massive 500-ton boulders would be thrown down. And here's what's so incredible. This is so amazing. Forty years later. That's right. Forty years after Jesus said these words, that these stones would be thrown down, that's exactly what happened. And here's how it came about. There had been a few years of Jewish gangs doing terrorist warfare against the Romans and kind of hit and run type of battles. Well, during one particular skirmish, they got lucky and they actually defeated a Roman legion of soldiers. And I was reading about that in in, in Josephus' works as well. Well, this gave them some confidence and it, it was false confidence. And they thought, hey, we're big stuff now. We whooped up on this legion and... Now we're strong enough, we're big enough, we're bad enough. We can expel Rome out of our country. Well, the older people thought, not so fast here, young guys. Uh, But they didn't listen, and they started in, and it didn't go well. Rome sent in the 10th Legion and other legions, and, and Vespasian, who started the war, became emperor, left his son Titus to build siege works around the city. And, and during this season, thousands of Jewish pilgrims flocked to the city because it was festival time. And, and initially, the Roman army said, no, you can't enter the city. But, but then Vespasian had a, a wicked idea. It was wicked. He said, on second thought, Let's let them open the gates to the city and allow them to enter. Once they're all in, we will seal it. We won't let them out. That way their food supply will be depleted faster. And history records what happened inside the city was horrible. The Jewish people would fight the Roman soldiers outside the walls by day. And then they would fight each other by night because they were so sure they were going to expel the Romans. They were fighting with each other who would become king of Israel. Well, during the fighting, one of the grain storage areas caught fire, burned up, a bunch of their food supply. It went downhill from there and and, um, scores of people died. And remember, they couldn't bury them inside the city walls. So they were just left on the streets. And I was reading this account in, in, in the works of Josephus, just some of the details, and evidently the, the stench was absolutely unbearable. Well, finally, on August 6th, AD 70, 70 AD, the, the final wall was breached, and the 10th legion went into the city and killed just about everything that couldn't be sold into slavery. They burned everything that would burn. And, and you can fact check me. I realize sometimes preachers get up there and they just kind of shoot from the hip and some of it's right, some of it's just kind of guesswork. But you can fact check me on this. Uh, They took those huge stones. They pushed, they pulled, they dragged those stones that made up the temple. They pushed them off the ledge of the plaza Temple Plaza dumped them into the valley below. Fulfilling what Jesus said, that the stones of the majestic and quote-unquote earthquake-proof temple would be thrown down. 
Today you can go to the southwest corner of the temple and see some of those stones for yourself. And, and when that happened, listen, this is huge. This is huge. When the temple was destroyed on that day, in the early days of August, A.D. 70, ancient Judaism, as it had been known for hundreds of years, died. Because ancient Judaism needed a temple. Ancient Judaism needed an altar for animal sacrifices. And the temple and the altar were destroyed. And up until even today, it's never been rebuilt. In fact, this is what the temple area looks like today. Uh, those of you that went into Israel, you, you know this. <laughs> Looking down from the Mount of Olives. But right here is the Dome of the Rock. That's where the temple was supposed to be. In uh, around 700 A.D., Muslims came and built the first mosque. And obviously this wasn't it. But they built the first mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. An earthquake destroyed it, so they rebuilt it. Another earthquake destroyed it, so they rebuilt it to the current size that it is today. In 1099, I'm giving you a lot of history today, and some of you are just yawning, thinking, come on, get past the history. But in 1099, the crusaders came, and, and they conquered the city of Jerusalem. They turned the mosque into a church. Eighty-eight years later, Muslims came, and they retook it, turned it back into a mosque, which it still is today. But, but anyway, since the temple has never been rebuilt, Sinai Judaism has never been resurrected. Now, rabbinic Judaism was born, and that's what you have around the Western Wall. But ancient Judaism, Sinai Judaism, ended because, again, it was structured around a temple and sacrifices. So without a temple, without an altar for sacrifices, you can't have ancient Judaism. Jesus predicted it. Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And it happened. Now, let me try to ex explain something. This is really important. The group of men who followed after Jesus ascended up into the heavens, you know, after Peter was martyred and Paul was martyred and Andrew was martyred, Matthew was martyred and others. When, when all of Jesus' first century original followers died, the next group of people that stepped into leadership, the leadership of the church, they're referred to in history not as the apostles, but they're referred to as the church fathers. And the church fathers were quick to say, uh, quick, quick to do exactly what I'm doing today. The, the, they would say, aha, you know, it, it happened just as Jesus predicted it. Jesus said these stones would be thrown down. It happened. So Jesus is who he claims he is. But what's interesting and, and, and try to track with me here. This is so fascinating. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they didn't do what the church fathers did. They didn't say, well, Jesus predicted it and it happened just as it said, as he said. And so the question that we've got to wrestle to the ground today is why? Why didn't they say, and, and this is so amazing, you know, why didn't they say, you know, Jesus said the stones would be thrown down and they were, why didn't they leverage this for Christianity? And here's the answer. And this should make you fall on your knees and declare Jesus as your Lord. Because when the gospel of Mark was written, and by the way, Mark was probably the first gospel written. I know we've got Matthew first, but that's kind of the bridge between the, 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 the Jewish 
laws into the New Testament, but most scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was the first one that was written. But when the Gospel of Mark was written, listen, the temple was still standing. And that's why Mark didn't say, and it happened just like Jesus said. When the Gospel of Matthew was written, the temple was still standing. That's why Matthew didn't say, well, sure enough, it happened just like Jesus said. And when the Gospel of Luke was written, the temple was still standing. These were prophecies of, of something that would take place in the future. And, and, and here's where I want you to listen. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel writers, they proclaimed Jesus' word boldly. They said, these stones would be thrown down even though at that time it seemed like a total impossibility. No way in the world that could happen. Yet they had the confidence that if Jesus said it would happen, it would happen. And it did happen, just like Jesus prophesied. And so today, if you haven't come to the point of believing that Jesus is who he says he is, then this one prophecy alone ought to cause you to fall on your knees and worship. It ought to cause you to realize that the other prophecies that were given, such as the second coming, the great tribulation, the judgment, all of those prophecies at the right time will also be fulfilled. So Jesus, through this prophecy, was help, trying to help them understand that something new was in the air. The days of animal sacrifice, the days of God's covenant being exclusively with the nation of Israel, those days were coming to an end, and this would be replaced by one greater than the temple. And we finally arrive at the heart of what I want to get to, and I'm finished with my introduction. I'm ready to start preaching. I told you we'd be here a while. You might want to just slip off your shoes. Maybe not. <laughs> but this right here is the cornerstone of what I, I'm trying so desperately to get across today. Twenty years after that conversation on the temple steps, and of course at this point the temple was still standing, twenty years after Jesus gave this prophecy, the Apostle Paul, writing to ex pagans in Corinth and he writes them these astounding words that again we miss because we've never been temple people you know we've been church people but we understand this is just a building we don't do animal sacrifices here this is not the temple there's nothing really holy about this this is just a building we understand that so we don't understand really the temple concept very well but here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, this was a game changer. This was huge. Paul said, Your bodies now are the temples. In other words, the very same Spirit that inhabited the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, this very same Holy Spirit now inhabits the hearts of men and women who have fully yielded themselves to God. And here are the implications of this statement that Paul made. This, this is huge. I keep saying it's huge, but it is huge. You know, the sacred, with the arrival of Jesus, has been commuted, which means this. There are now no more sacred objects. You know, preachers used to talk about standing behind the sacred desk to preach God's word. There are no sacred desks. There are no sacred objects. There's no sacred geography. We talk about going to the Holy Land. Well, the land is not holy. 
Just take a trip there and you'll realize that. There's no sacred geography. People talk about the sacred sites in Israel. And, and when we were there, people were pushing and shoving just to be able to touch the rock that they believe that Jesus prayed at there in the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane. And, and they would push and shove and wait hours to get a glimpse and even touch the grotto, the, the cave where they think Jesus was born. They believe those are sacred sites. There are no sacred sites. Jesus said, there's something greater than the temple here. And And so all of the sacred sites, uh, you know, the sacred holy of holies, the sacred temple, the sacred geography, the sacred robes that the priests use, that the sacred has now been commuted, has been transferred to those who allow Jesus to inhabit them. We become the temple and our bodies house the Holy Spirit and our bodies become holy and sacred. And let me finish that verse, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So the message to us today, just as the, the Jewish people honored and revered the temple, so God wants us to honor and revere Him through our bodies. And that takes us back to the very opening statements of our lesson. Remember back a long time ago? Many times we fall into the trap of loving our traditions, our doctrines, our Bibles more than we love people. we got to stop doing that. We need to get back to loving people. And again, we don't need to throw out our standards. And even some of our traditions are good. But we need to begin loving people as Jesus loved them. Because here's, here's the reason. Our doctrine won't get the attention of others. You know that? You're not going to win people by your doctrine. Our traditions won't attract others. You know, we have four songs here at this church. An offering... That's not going to attract the attention of anybody. You know what will attract people to Jesus? It's our love. And so today, just as the temple was so majestic and was supposed to draw people to Judaism as temples of the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to draw people to Jesus. And so here we are. We've bounced into a new year. And I want to challenge you. I want to just motivate you. Let the temple of Jesus Christ, which is you, let it be pleasing to Jesus. Now, here's what we're going to do as you leave uh, the building this morning. Um, We've uh, prepared some bracelets for you. Thanks to someone in this church who anonymously took care of this. She just got the word shine. And I think that's what God would want us to do through the temple of Jesus Christ. And so uh, you're going to be receiving one of these. And I want to just challenge you to love people this year as never before. And yes, they are annoying, but don't you think the Pharisees were annoying? Don't you think that there were some annoying people during Jesus' day? Of course. 
love them as Jesus loved them. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.